Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guests are Amanda Dixon, Madison Sherrill, and Hadar Tanay, who are law students at Duke University. We'll be discussing their paper, Damages as a Function of Fault, Willful Breach and M&A Contracts, which they wrote with co-authors Teresa Arnold and Mitu Galati. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Amanda, Madison, Hadar, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having us. This paper is the third in a trilogy of papers. It follows the myth of optimal expectation damages and lipstick on a pig, specific performance clauses in action. So this group has written several contract theory papers before you've even graduated from law school. What's the origin story of this Duke Law contracts group and what made you decide to do this work? Hi, this is Madison. I can start and then let Amanda and Hadar add their personal experiences. I think, to be very honest, this origin story probably starts with my being late the first day of class, our second semester 1L year, to our very first contracts class. And so I sat in the back row right beside Amanda, neither of us knowing that that is Me Too's favorite way to pick on and cold call students. He always starts at the back. So I'm pretty sure, you know, I got the first cold call in class and wound up arguing with Me Too about whether someone who's drunk can enter into a legally binding contract. And Amanda asked some really good questions all semester long. And I think that Me Too remembered my cold call and then generously, but undeservedly probably attributed a lot of Amanda's intelligence to me because I sat beside her. So When the semester wrapped up and he asked if I wanted to do some research with him and Amanda that 1L summer, I just was thrilled. I think it's really special and cool to be able to work with a professor so closely, especially one as expert as me too. And that first summer, our research kind of hinged on some stuff that I think Amanda in particular found very interesting and thought-provoking in class. So that's kind of how I got involved. This is Amanda. Madison gives me far too much credit for asking intelligent questions, but I will let it go down in a mythology rather than the fact of what I was saying during 1L year. But we worked together that summer with Me Too, and we got started on this research question of expectation damages generally. And from there, all of the papers kind of flowed out of each other. We started with this very discreet question of expectation damages in debt contracts, which is Michu's specialty. And it evolved from there into this exploration of multiple paper long exploration in the damages world. That's your origin story. And I'd like to maybe turn to the third paper in the trilogy, which is Damages as a Fall to Function, Willful Breach, and M&A Contracts. What contracts theory or black letter law that we learn in a 1L contracts class uh, do you confront in this paper? And what were your intuitions to the contrary? Hi, this is Hadar. This paper is really, like Amanda and Madison said, has flowed pretty naturally from the previous papers. I was lucky enough to join on the second paper just this past summer. And this paper right now about willful breach 
flowed naturally as yet another debunking of classic 1L contracts doctrine. Basically, we were all taught in Me Too's contracts class, but he was also taught when he was in law school that commercial contracts have nothing to do with morality unless maybe you count the doctrine of unconscionability, which barely anyone does. We all just thought that contracts, especially commercial contracts in the M&A context, were an agreement between two parties to perform, and if they can't perform, then they pay damages. But we also knew from our own paper and from a lot of academic discussions that there's really a debate about whether just to pay damages can make jilted party whole. In this paper, we were trying to account for the appearance of terms that imply morality in these very commercial contracts. We looked at a lot of contracts that had this term willful breach and we said, okay, what is the difference between willful breach? Does it make any difference in this context? And why does it kind of sound like it's blaming one party for being willful or guilty or something like that? So that was our intuition. And we looked into a lot of M&A contracts. And then like in previous papers, we also did qualitative data collection with interviews with lawyers. I'd like to talk about some of those research methods and your findings. Uh, Let's maybe take them in two parts because you had a qualitative and a quantitative side to your research here. Could you first maybe tell me about your quantitative methods that you used and how did you make the choices on the data that you're going to pull? This is Madison again. There is a database within Westlaw called What's Market, and it has super helpfully cataloged public M&A transactions and coded them for all sorts of variables. So you can kind of filter through by things as narrow as sector, industry, deal amount, signing date. It's amazing. So this database has been a godsend for all of our projects, really, but this one included in that. The database pulls from any transaction that triggers a Form 8K filing with the SEC. So when we are looking at private and public deals in our research, we're going through Westlaw's database to mine information that's been filed on a Form 8K. And so in our data, which you'll see in our paper, we refer to private deals and public deals. And I think that deserves to come with the explanation that because these are all coming from Form 8Ks, what we have categorized as a public deal is a deal where both companies are publicly held and traded. And then a private deal, again, because these are SEC forms, one company has to be public. So our private deals are where one company is public and the other is a privately held one, but has still wound up on the SEC database. We were really just trying to cast as wide a net as possible within this M&A world available to us on Westlaw. So we pulled 100 deals, 50 private, 50 public for the years 2010 to 2019. So we ended up with a data set of over a thousand deals. We did a lot of command F searching within each document and we coded for a ton of variables like Hadar said, having to do with willful breach, if it was defined, what kind of clauses we saw it in, if it was paired with other concepts like fraud, basically anything we could think of that would bear on the significance of willful breach in a transaction. In this data set of these agreements that you pulled together, is willful breach typically defined as a term? And if not, do you have any explanation for why that might be? And how do the willful breach terms interact with terms about fraud? And what might those interactions tell us? It's defined pretty rarely with the caveat that the rates of definition we found within our data set were pretty varied. 
So in broad brushstrokes, we found that less than a third of public deals defined willful breach. And for private deals, it was less than a tenth. So, I mean, you can say that some parties do define it, but most really don't. And the reasons that we found for that were really interesting and came from our practitioner interviews, which I know we'll talk more about in a little bit. But I think all of us going in, we're thinking that willful breach sounds like it could kind of be a squishy term to use a term of art. So surely the parties are going to want to define it. But clearly, as I just said, they don't most of the time. And most practitioners we talked to seem to think that this was an intentional choice to create room for renegotiation during the life of a deal. And what they meant by that is this, there's way more leverage to get parties to come back to the table and renegotiate a contract and then ultimately still perform it if they don't define willful breach, but instead get to use it as kind of a proverbial stick. So if we don't know exactly what willful breach means, but it looks like, say, Amanda has committed it in our contract, then I, as the wronged party, instead of slapping her with breach of contract and going for increased damages in court because of willful breach, can now just say, Amanda, I think it looks like you may be in willful breach territory. Let's sit down and renegotiate this deal so that we can still get it done. It's a lot easier to have these discussions instead of going into litigation because, like I said, it feels kind of squishy, undefined. So who knows for sure really what a winning argument for willful breach in court is going to look like. It's a lot safer to play it safe and renegotiate instead of going for it in court. And, you know, then the deal does actually get done instead of ending in a lawsuit. I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that parties don't actually enter into a deal thinking that it's going to fail or end up in court. In law school, you know, we're reading case books where we only read about the cases that go bad and go to court. But again, practitioner interviews are valuable for so many reasons, but just these real life reminders of no parties want to get the deal done. And this is a way that they can maybe make that happen. As far as willful breach and fraud showing up together go, about 50% of the deals that we saw after 2015 paired willful breach with fraud. And usually we would see this in an effect of termination clause, basically saying that a cap on damages exists in the form of a termination fee when a deal falls through for ordinary reasons. But when fraud or willful breach has occurred, that cap is removed. And we thought this was interesting because, as Hadar said, terms like willful breach and fraud kind of have this connotation of immorality, bad behavior, wrongdoing, what have you. The practitioners we talked to really kind of resisted our using words like morality. So I think the term that we landed on in our paper was out of bounds behavior. And pairing them together, I think, just undergirds or strengthens this idea that even if it's an undefined term, there is some conduct that is so out of bounds for parties acting within a deal that you don't get to reap the benefits of the normal guardrails we put in place around damages if the deal doesn't work out. I'd like to talk about some of those practitioner interviews that you allude to, Madison. I was really excited to see these because oftentimes interviews are really effective at answering factual questions, and I think there's more room for their use in legal scholarship, so I was really excited to see you use these methods. Could you describe how you designed your interview methods? What barriers did you encounter, and how did you manage around those barriers? 
Hi, Amanda here. We adopted the interview technique. Me Too had used it before, and we had these data results that were surprising to us. And so they were out of step with the traditional contracts doctrine, but they were pretty clear. And so we wanted to know what was going on here. Were contract practitioners just forgetting their 1L contract textbooks, or was there something that they thought was going on that was different than how scholars were theorizing about it. And so we would set up interviews. We usually sent out an initial description of the project and what we were looking for. And we had practitioners that were so generous with their time, especially Duke alum, who were so kind to talk to us. And we would start out with the initial kind of basic questions of our project. Why are they putting willful breach language in? What purpose do they see it serving? Is this actually a break with traditional contract doctrine or is there some kind of loophole that we're seeing here that it actually does fit with our traditional understanding. So our practitioners were super helpful and then they talked to us. I think especially one of the things Madison said was very clear coming out of these interviews that I think was not necessarily clear to us going in. And like Madison said, doesn't necessarily fit with the conception you get in law school, but they really don't think of these clauses as drafting in light of litigation coming up. Of course, a lot of them do look at what are courts doing and what are their litigation side friends saying about them, but it's not their main focus. Their main focus is the deal continues and that it goes on. And so they're more drafting in light of negotiation and not litigation, which we found really interesting and definitely put a different light on our results. In general, with these projects and with this one in particular, we have seen that practitioners have this ingrained sense of some of these basics of contract doctrine. And as Madison said, kind of resisted a moral framing, even where we were seeing a differentiated amount of damages or a differentiated kind of clause between innocent and guilty breach, as some of them phrased it, with these willful breach clauses, the framing of having morality involved in their damages calculation was something that people really pushed back against. And so that was a little bit of a barrier. It seems this hardwired thing of we're told morality is not important in contracts. And so even when we were hearing what to us sounded like moral language, so like innocent breach, for example, or out of or totally unacceptable behavior. They resisted an on-the-nose framing of that as a moral consideration and wanted to point us more to the practical concerns that it was addressing. I love how you used both the quantitative and the qualitative methods to support each other in your M&A data set collection. You showed that practice across the universe of public company and, and private company M&A agreements that are publicly filed is really inconsistent with what we'd expect from our 1L contracts doctrine, and then you use interviews to explain why that is. Just to delve a little bit more into the interviews, what did you learn about the origins of willful breach provisions? Have they been around for a long time, or are they of more uh, recent origin? Uh, why aren't termination fees adequate to deal with non-performance in M&A contracts? This is Hadar. So that's kind of a two-part question. The first part, the origins of the term, we heard a couple of versions. The one that got a little bit of consensus is that willful breach came about in the heyday of private equity funds buying large companies. 
And I say the heyday, I think they referred to it as sort of the early 2000s, so pre-crisis. There were more private equity funds that wanted to buy companies than there were companies to be bought. And so the target companies really could demand a lot of things from the buyers. And what they demanded wasn't just higher price. They also demanded potential consequences for breach. So they could really say, you know, if the buyer breaches because they found a better deal, we don't want to be the ones holding the bag, especially because a target company that is putting itself on the market to be bought by a private equity fund is basically admitting that they're better off being run by someone else. And so it really leaves them vulnerable to being devalued in the market if that deal doesn't go through. So that's one story that we heard about the origin of the term. But a lot of times we also heard lawyers say, you know what, we don't really know where this is coming from. It's just industry standard, if that makes sense. You see it in a lot of deals and you see that the other party gave it, so to speak, in previous deals. And so that gives you leverage to demand it in this current deal when you're facing them. And as for why termination fees aren't adequate to deal with non-performance, like I said, it was implied that it came out of the private equity heyday. But the ultimate idea is that you have two parties that are one buying the other or merging or doing some sort of deal that involves the entirety of their assets, basically. And you know that these deals are very, very complex. There's a lot of regulatory approvals. The financing needs to come through. The banks need to come through. A lot of things need to align. I think one lawyer said that all the stars need to align for a deal like this to come through. So if a deal breaks down because one of these conditions didn't happen, then you know, no harm, no foul. There might be a termination fee. It may be a shame, but at the end of the day, you know, these things happen. However, if a deal falls through because one party just decided that it wasn't interested in it anymore, even though they were engaged in negotiations and the deal is almost closed, basically, if one party decides they just don't want it because they found a better deal, for example, then the jilted party really feels like a chump. That's, I have to say, a lot of the feeling that I got from a lot of the lawyers we talked to where no one wants to feel like a chump. So it's not necessarily a morality thing, like they said. It's more of a guilt thing. And so because termination fees are generally capped, like Madison said, willful breach and fraud are added as sort of a removal to that cap. So again, if a deal falls through because a party just found a better deal, then the party that's jilted says, you know what? You're not going to get away with it. This is not an option to perform or pay. And we want what's ours and we want you to suffer in a way. So termination fees feel inadequate because they don't really compensate you for basically being left at the altar. Let's talk about takeaways. What does all this mean about contract theory and the strict liability approach to contract theory? And Hadar, you mentioned an option either to perform or pay. What does this paper mean for the idea that a contract is an option either to perform or pay? This is Amanda. Yeah, that's such a great question. Obviously, our paper is 
limited to a certain space, specific type of deals. So these high sophistication M&A contracts, and it's not dealing with other spaces and contracts that could look different. But from what we found, we think that there are questions out there about strict liability and about this idea of contracts as options, because these parties are not seeing their deals as purely strict liability. They don't see it as the same, whether breach is inadvertent or because deal approval didn't go through from administrative agencies or things like that versus if it was intentional. They don't see those as the same and they don't think that their compensation should be the same, which undercuts broad idea of contracts as a completely strict liability area. It looks a little more like your traditional torts world where damages are a function of fault. And so there's some tension there. And we also explicitly saw practitioners saying that these clauses were in there because parties had treated contracts as an option when the market got volatile in the 2008 financial crisis and that they wanted a clear signal that they didn't view this contract as an option, that you couldn't just pay instead of perform just because you wanted to. And so the parties were rejecting this idea of contracts as option through the inclusion of a willful breach clause. So I think it does undermine those theories a little bit. And we also found that there's some tension that we saw coming out of this between the modern contract theory bedrock. So strict liability as the basis of contract law being one of them, and then the other being that contracts are purely private law in the sense that parties get to set exactly what they want as the law of their deal. And these two bedrocks of party choice and strict liability became kind of a tension in this paper where what happens when what parties want is not strict liability? What wins among these two bedrocks of modern contract theory? Is it party choice or is it strict liability? And so some of that, I think we might have to get played out in courts and see what they'll allow. And, you know, as our practitioners reminded us, courts aren't always the first option for these parties. They want to negotiate and they don't want to end up in court. But some of that might depend on what courts do. And we also think it's interesting how parties conceive of this and what choices parties think they have. So thank you all. I've enjoyed this conversation and hope that listeners will uh, take a look at your paper. As I mentioned at the top of the conversation, this is the third paper in a trilogy. So before we close out, I wondered if you'd like to maybe introduce your prior papers and their key findings, and I'll be sure to add links to those in the show notes as well. Madison, one last time, I'll explain our first paper called The Myth of Optimal Expectation Damages, which focused on make-whole provisions in debt contracts. So we looked at both sovereign bonds and corporate bonds to look at the existence of make-whole premiums in the event of early repayment of debt. So this idea that I sell this debt and all of a sudden I come into a ton of money unexpectedly and can now pay it all off instead of making my yearly payments with interest to my debt holders, I have to pay a premium on those payments because the purchaser of my debt is now missing out on all of these years of interest payments in the future. And to kind of tie it all back to this undercurrent of the disconnect between what we learn doctrinally in 1L and what we see in the real world we all came out of 1L with kind of two understandings. One, you can't contract for a penalty. And two, sophisticated parties, given the option, would choose to contract for expectation damages because those reposition a jilted party the best. 
And what we found in our quantitative data, again, doesn't line up with that. So we're finding, well, first of all, this is a huge amount of money that early repayers are having to pay way beyond expectation damages, which kind of feels like a penalty. And again, practitioners vehemently pushed back on that and said, no, this is not a penalty. This is a right that you have contractually and you're paying a premium to exercise that right. And two, though, you have sophisticated parties who are clearly choosing a remedy that is far above and beyond expectation damages. So that was our first paper. And that one was a lot of fun, too. This is Hadar. Our second paper is called Lipstick on a Pig, Specific Performance Clauses in Action. We came out of 1L, as Madison said, with some fundamental, perhaps, misunderstandings of contract doctrine because we all thought that specific performance is something that you only get in extraordinary cases, perhaps involving an heirloom or a treasure or something really, really unique. But in our data set, we found that over 80% of the deals that we looked at had a specific performance clause. We found that quite astounding. And so again, we used MeToo's model and went to lawyer practitioners and asked them, how come we have so much specific performance contracting in very commercial contracts. We also saw that this was over industries and time and no matter how big the deal was and whether it was primarily financial or strategic. And so our lawyer interviewees said that M&A was just different, that unique M&A deals deserved unique remedies, that M&A mergers were not just about money, they were about the synergy of two companies coming together. And if the deal was breached, they will not be able to find that same synergy elsewhere. And so again, sometimes what the interviews came out saying was not necessarily what we were expecting to see, but it really explained to us how these practitioners saw the contracts that they themselves were drafting. And that paper, Specific Performance, flowed pretty naturally into us examining what we examined in our current paper, which is willful breach in those same deals. Our guests today have been Amanda Dixon, Madison Sherrill, and Hadar Tanay, who are law students at Duke University. We've discussed their paper, Damages as a Function of Fault, Willful Breach in M&A Contracts, which they wrote with co-authors Teresa Arnold and Mitu Galati. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Amanda, Madison, Hadar, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.